0: A reading a reading from Genesis thirty-five, one through twenty, and twenty-seven through nine to through twenty-nine, sorry. <clears throat> then God said to Jacob, Go up to Bethel and settle there, and build an altar there to God, who appeared to you when you were fleeing from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and all who were with him. Get rid of the foreign gods you have with you and purify yourselves and change your clothes. Then come, let us go to Bethel where I will build an altar to God who answered me in the day of my distress and who has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods they had and the rings in their ears and Jacob buried them under the oak of Shechem. Then they set out, and the terror of God fell on the towns all around them so that no one pursued them. Jacob and all the people with him came to Luz, that is Bethel, in the land of Canaan. There he built an altar, and he called the place El Bethel, because it was there that God revealed himself to him when he was fleeing from his brother. Now Deborah... Rebekah's nurse died and was buried under the oak outside Bethel. So it was named Alone bakuth After Jacob returned from Paddan Aram, God appeared to him again and blessed him. God said to him, Your name is Jacob, but you will no longer be called Jacob. Your name will be Israel. So he called him Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and increase in number. A nation and a community of nations will come from you, and kings will be among your descendants. The land I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I also give to you, and I will give this land to your descendants after you. Then God went up from him at the place where he had talked with him. Jacob set up a stone pillar at the place where God had talked with him, and he poured out a drink offering on it. He also poured oil on it. Jacob called the place where God had talked with him Bethel. Then they moved on from Bethel, while they were still some distance from Ephrath. Rachel began to give birth and had great difficulty. And as she was having great difficulty in childbirth, the midwife said to her, Don't despair, for you have another son. As she breathed her last, for she was dying... She named her son Benoni, but his father named him Benjamin. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. Over her tomb, Jacob set a pillar, and to this day that pillar marks Rachel's tomb. Jacob came home to his father Isaac in Mimir near Kirith-erba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had stayed. Isaac lived 180 years, then he breathed his last, and died, and was gathered to his people, old and full of years. And his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thank you, Catherine. Let's pray together. God, thank you for giving us your word. And we thank you that you give us your Holy Spirit. And we're asking that you would combine these two gifts together. That your Spirit would come and speak to us through your word. That you would show us things of God and things of ourselves and things of one another that perhaps we have not yet seen. Or that we need to see again. That we might be transformed more and more into your glory. This is what we ask. This is what you promise. And so we're expectant as we turn our attention to your word. So come now and glorify yourself in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. I have in my mind this morning those classic before and after photos. You know, those pictures that advertisers use in order to show the power of their product, the change that happens across a certain span of time. Sometimes they're selling a diet program, maybe it's workout equipment, home renovation, showing how much improvement has been made after in comparison to that thing before. Of course, usually if you look closely, you'll notice the second picture has brighter lights and the guy is flexing and holding his breath or something. But you get the point. The point is being made, a contrast, a comparison, and improvement. Today's passage gives us a, a kind of before and after snapshot of Jacob's life. And I say that because if you were reading carefully, you might have noticed, if you've been with us throughout this series on the life of Jacob, that nearly everything in this passage is an echo of or almost a repeat of something that happened earlier, sometimes years earlier, in Jacob's life. So in chapter 28, over 20 years ago now, we saw a scene of Jacob in Bethel, where he first encountered God in that wondrous dream of a stairway that came down from heaven. Now, 20 years later, here's Jacob, together with his family, heading back to Bethel. In chapter 28, again, years ago, God gave Jacob many promises. Promise of descendants. The promise of the blessing of peoples through him. The promise of God's presence. I am with you. And here today, in this chapter, chapter 35, we hear again, in Bethel... God making nearly identical promises that he would be fruitful and multiply in number, that nations will come from Jacob, that the land that God gave to Abraham and Isaac, he will give to Jacob. Years ago, when Jacob woke up from the dream, he built a pillar to remember his encounter. Here, he also today names the place Bethel. And he builds an altar and worships God. When Jacob wrestled with God in chapter 32, he was renamed by God from Jacob to Israel, given a new name. And here again, God says in verse 10, your name is Jacob, but you will no longer be called Jacob. Your name will be Israel, which of course means he struggles with God. Before and after and again and again, the narrative is inviting us to make a comparison between the before Jacob and the after Jacob. And this naturally raises the question, has this dude changed much after all these years? What really is the difference between these two panels, pictures, before and after? Has Jacob changed after all these years of encountering God? Have we? I want to talk this morning about the idea of spiritual change. Spiritual change. And in two parts. First, the pattern of spiritual change. And then secondly, the practice of spiritual change. First, the pattern. I want you to notice, if you haven't noticed already, we've tried to make a point of it again and again throughout this series. Notice again that Jacob is a deeply flawed person. He's made a lot of mistakes. In fact, I've got to confess, as a preacher, there were times when talking about these narratives that I almost felt embarrassed to have to show all the ways in which he was deeply, deeply, sometimes seemingly fatally, flawed as a person. And Yet, of course, we've tried to highlight again, that is to the glory of God's grace. We'll come back to that point in a second. Jacob made a lot of mistakes. Sometimes he wasn't even very likable, not exactly the hero that you'd find yourself rooting for. I mean, he's new, right? He's been renamed Israel, the way that God often gives new names to his people when he wants to indicate that they've been transformed if not in their life, actually, certainly in his heart, provisionally. He's Israel, but he's also got a lot of Jacob still left in him, just like we do. He's a mixed bag. It's almost a precursor to what the Apostle Paul will say in Romans chapter 7 so famously. "I, I, I do what I don't want to do, and I don't do what I want to do. Who can rescue me? from this body of death. Jacob is, and we are both sinners and saints. Do you know that it's possible to be loved by God, make big mistakes, and still be loved by God? Consider Samson. Consider David. Consider the apostle Peter. In their stories, we would have given up on them. God doesn't. He doesn't give up on you either. God chose to set his blessing and love on Jacob, not because he was better than the rest, more handsome than the rest, more gifted, or even more useful than the rest. God chose him because of sheer grace alone. In fact, the Bible tells us God delighted to pick someone so weak and flawed in order that it would be perfectly clear that all the good that would come of him was not from him, but from God. It would highlight the grace and the glory and the strength of God. As 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 28 says, God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things, so that no one may boast before him. So that no one could say, that's because of me. That's because I figured it out. That's because I was stronger or better or more resolved. No, that no one could say that and only could say it's because of him. And that means that you and I, to say nothing of Jacob, have a chance. A chance at being loved, at being accepted, of being embraced by the God of the universe. We have a chance. Everybody has a chance. If God is a God of grace, and he is, and that also means then, that if the church is a community that has gathered people that have been admitted into the community of God's people, according to this standard, according to these qualifications, qualifications of God's grace, then that means we should expect that the church will often be a a place where oftentimes the worst people are welcome that we shouldn't be surprised when we bump into people with deep, deep flaws and vices, people like me. When we, when we shouldn't be then surprised when we're in community and we sometimes, or maybe even often, get hurt by one another. Because if the church is a place of grace, then it means it will be filled with people who are also sinners. Sinners saved by grace. A place where people maybe you might feel aren't changing fast enough. A, people, a place where people are saved but still deeply flawed. A church isn't a place where God makes good people better, but where God makes dead people alive. And it's also not a place where fast people run, but where broken people limp. Which means again, you are welcome. I and welcome. Glory to God, a God of grace. People that are changing, people that are growing, Philippians 1.6 gives us this assurance. I thank my God every time I remember you, confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. But what does that carrying it on look like? What's Jacob's pattern of change, our pattern of change, look like, it's a zigzag. It's not a straight line. Sometimes it's three steps forward and two steps back. Oftentimes it's not a predictable march towards greatness and success. Listen, I oftentimes have found myself reading these narratives, almost rolling my eyes at Jacob, criticizing him under my breath, and then I notice my own life. And how stubborn sin is within me. The Bible talks about sanctification. Theologians use that word often. It simply means the process of change. The way in which we grow spiritually more and more into the image of Jesus the moral beauty of Jesus, so that we look, talk, sound, act, and even smell, if we can talk about the aroma that we just bring with us in our relationships, more and more like Christ. But the Bible is clear, and the story of Jacob is clear, that sanctification, change, is a long, slow, and zigzaggy journey in God's grace. Do you know that? Have you learned to expect that? Will that possibly give you more patience or even perseverance to continue to the next stage of your journey, your growth in Christ? Right? Because sometimes the key thing to being able to continue on in the race is learning that you're, you're not in a sprint, you're, you're on a 5K. Right? Or, or learning you're not on a 5K, you're running a marathon. And to know that the ride is bumpy and the ride is long. Sometimes we're not so patient with that. We want just to be able to click on a YouTube video and boom, I'm different. I'm changed. I've overcome this struggle, this sin, this character flaw. But that's not how it works, is it? John Newton, the old slave trader who found Jesus... And out of his life of repentance produced wonderful hymns like Amazing Grace. Said this about his own life of transformation. I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be in another world. But still, I am not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. Is that your confession too? What is the pattern of spiritual change as the Bible lays it out? Yes, it is assured. Yes, it is guaranteed. Christ will carry on to completion until the day of Christ, his work in you to make you more like Jesus. But that process, that carrying it on, often looks like an up and down, backwards and forwards, zigzaggy process that we can't fathom and sometimes we can't stand. That's the pattern. But what's the practice? How do we actually grow? How do we change along the way? The Bible is very clear. It's not just by snapping our fingers. It certainly isn't by sheer human willpower that we change but rather it's by engaging the grace of God in various ways. Let's look at the practice of spiritual change. What does that look like? A bunch of things that we find in this narrative. Let's run through it quickly. First of all, notice, Jacob, for all that I've said about him, for all that we notice about his flaws, he does change. He has changed. I mean, sometimes you have to squint a little bit to see it, but he does grow And so do we. Here we find him following God's words. He's leading a family. He's worshiping. Jacob's been a lot of things, a grasper, a cheat, a coward. Here he's something beautiful, a worshiper. What are the practices that we see him employing as a worshiper? How does this change happen? Number one, awakening, awakening. In this translation, verse 1, at the very top of the story, it begins, Then God said to Jacob. Other translations say, and God. It connects this story to the story that just preceded. What came before? Well, it was the assault of Jacob's daughter. It was Jacob's miserable failure to respond to it. It was the vengeful massacre carried out by his own sons upon the entire town in which they lived, Shechem. It was basically a massive crisis in his life. And we might take note, what was it that preceded this moment of Jacob making change, of his growth, of his spiritual transformation? Here's a lesson. Oftentimes, spiritual change is ignited by personal disaster. Hard circumstances, troubling seasons, difficulties, And all I want to say is pay attention to those moments of pain and disruption. Sometimes we wish they would just get out of the way so that we can get to God. When in fact, it's in that very thing that God wants to meet you. Pay attention to those moments of disruption, of pain. Oftentimes, God is on the move. Awakening. Secondly, turning. We see in verse 2, so Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, get rid of the foreign gods you have with you and purify yourselves and change your clothes. And then verse 4, so they gave Jacob all the foreign gods they had and the rings in their ears and Jacob buried them under the oaks of Shechem. Here's an invitation to tend to attend to the idols of our hearts. But What's an idol? We've talked about this many times recently. These are just things in our lives, not necessarily religious things, but things that we grip onto just a little bit too tightly. Things that we worship and bow down to as being the greatest thing in life, the thing that defines us, the thing that we need, the thing that we can't live without. And of course, it doesn't mean that it's little figurines in your life that you keep on your shelf. And it doesn't mean you might be physically bowing down before them, but it might be something like approval. It might be a career track that you're on. It might be a relationship. It might be a specific possession, yes, but it's something that you can't do without. Something that you're looking to to give you hope and joy and meaning and identity. Something that God alone is able to give you in its truest forms. Here, Jacob invites his whole household to get rid of such gods. It's a picture of repentance, of turning away from the idols of our lives. But you notice what's helpful here is you might be reading that and saying, wait, wait, what? What, what? I thought they were following the God of Israel. What do you mean foreign gods in your midst? Well, listen, in the journey of life, even when we're at our sincerest, Sometimes we just kind of pick up them idols and put them in our pockets along the way, don't we? Sometimes we find ourselves cultivating new desires, new things to cling to, different parts of your life that maybe that wasn't a struggle, now it is, or vice versa. For instance, myself, I, I find myself, or maybe I'm just seeing it afresh, how much I have an idolatry of what you might describe as being understood, Uh, where I I just need, I just have this feeling or this need or this desire that whether if it's a person I'm talking to or a person I'm in conflict with or a person in my home, my children, my wife, where I'm like, I need you to understand, to be able to read my mind, and I'm going to talk this out until you know exactly what I'm thinking. Idolatry of being understood. I wouldn't have named that a couple years ago. Maybe that was a little idol I picked up along the road, along the journey. Jacob leads his family to bury them under the oak. Too often we identify idols in our lives. Maybe we even confess them before God, but then we just leave them in our pockets. Will you bury those idols Today, with the help of the Holy Spirit, turn from the idols of your heart decisively. Awakening, turning, remembering. In verse 3, we're told, Then come, let us go up to Bethel, where I will build an altar to God, who answered me in the day of my distress and who has been with me wherever I have gone. Sometimes the the problem with our inability to grow and change, again, it it might be an area of pride. It, It might be a bad habit. It might be some other particular vice. Sometimes it's because we are not decisively turning from those things and burying them under the tree, as it were. At other times, it's because we're not adequately remembering the goodness of God. Jacob has not forgotten. God, he says, is a God who answered me in the day of my distress. I have not forgotten. I remember how faithful, how kind he has been rescuing me time and again from the clutches of Laban, from my brother Esau, from the people of Shechem, from my own sinful heart. And God has been with me wherever I have gone. When was the last time you enumerated the kindnesses of God in your life? There is no spiritual transformation without a heart that explodes with gratitude. Seen all that God has not only done for you, but been for you. His faithfulness. Do you see His character on display? Will you remember God's faithfulness in concrete terms and not just the circumstantial things in your life, but the ways that He's changed you in your soul, in your behavior? Recount them before one another. Do this in your life groups. Do this in your relationships over lunch and dinner. Hey, you know what? I just want to say, you've actually grown in that area. I mean, be careful in how you do that, right? You know, you used to be an arrogant punk, but now you're okay, right? But you know what? Maybe that's how we have to talk. To name our sin and weakness. To laugh together and to rejoice that's right. I used to be that way. And I'm so glad that I'm not what I used to be because of God's grace. Number 4, worshiping, awakening, turning, remembering, worshiping. Verse 6. Jacob and all the people with him came to Luz, that's Bethel, in the land of Canaan. There he built an altar and he called the place El Bethel, which means God of Bethel. Then look at verse 14. Jacob set, a stone, set up a stone pillar at the place where God had talked with him and he poured out a drink offering on it. He also poured oil on it too. Jacob here is leading the people in worship. So notice he didn't just say, well, let me just tell you about what God's done in the past. Remembering, He didn't just say, hey, let's take those idols. Let's bury it under the ground. He said, let's get down on our knees. Let's open wide our hearts. (laughs) Let's get out that oil, which is sort of a a tangible way in which we can see, smell, and sense the presence of God. See, a lot of times we treat spiritual change as if it's just sort of this uh, transaction, an equation. You just plug and chug and, hey, how come I'm not different? Or sometimes we think it's just a matter of sort of a cognitive process. Well, I know what's wrong with me, And I know what I'm supposed to do, so I guess I'll then, voila, change. And how often we say that to each other. Well, I I know what's wrong with me. But maybe you don't. Maybe you need God's insight. Maybe that's stuff that's only discovered when we're on our knees. In fact, the Bible says that so. Because remembering is not just a brain exercise, it's a soul exercise. Spiritual change only happens when God in his grace comes deep in and electrifies your heart. It has to move you from within. So if you're turning from idols... You don't just say, I confess that I have these idols in my life and I love them more than I love you, God. And it's making me sin in all these ways. And you don't just recite that as if somebody's forcing you to. You grieve it. You tell God that it stinks. You you feel how offensive it is to him and, and you start to feel it in your own heart. And then you see the mercy of God. Or you hear the pardon as we just went through earlier in the service, and you don't just say, Yeah, that's true. You say, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice because it's only when our hearts are moved deep down that change actually happens. Some of you have all the kindling and the wood set in the oven, but you haven't lit the match of your soul and you're wondering why change hasn't happened. You need the fire. And by the way, it's not you that lights the match. It's God the Holy Spirit. So will you come to him with a heart of worship, with a a life laid prostrate before God, allowing him to electrify your inward parts and stir your soul? Because that's essential to any prospect of change. And fifthly, number five, awakening, turning, remembering, worshiping. Fifthly, we encounter in this story grieving. Grieving. You might have noticed literally on the journey here with Jacob, verse 8, now Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, died and was buried under the oak outside Bethel. So it was named Alon Bakuth, which by the way means Oak of Weeping. Here's what I want to point out. Oftentimes, too often, our grief is blocked, even though our grief is a doorway to spiritual transformation. And our refusal to pay attention to our sadness too often is a barrier, a blockage to our spiritual growth. We all Day-to-day, week-to-week, and certainly across many, a longer span of life, we face many losses, loss of job. In this city, especially loss of friendship, people move away in and out of town often. There's blocked goals, loss of dreams, and of course, there's the loss of loved ones to death. Have we paid attention to these areas of sadness and sorrow? When we don't, we think it's not there, but oftentimes we're just leaking. It shows itself yet in different ways. Author and therapist Chuck DeGroat has written, Trauma not grieved becomes stagnant in depression, numbed through addiction, projected through scapegoating, avoided through spiritual bypassing, spiritualized through a martyr complex, we live in traumatic times. Take care of yourself. This is sort of a random thought, but as I was thinking about this topic, I, I, I just wrote down here, ha- have we adequately grieved what was lost during the pandemic? I'm not sure we have. And I just raised before you this question, how much of our our deepest, character flaws, our insecurities, our poor stewardship of our bodies, our constant need for affirmation, our need for control, our bad tempers, our fearfulness, our inability to admit our wrongs, how much of these deep character flaws are actually habits formed around our deep, unaddressed sadnesses? Many of us, what we really need, the most spiritual thing that we need is a really long cry. Have you done so lately? Or what we really need to, is, is to unpeel the, the self-protective layers uh, and, and to resist apologizing for our tears. I mean, c- family, can, can we build in a cultural norm amongst us that when the tears start to fall, we do not apologize? And we do not make others, with our awkward responses, feel like they need to apologize. What we really need sometimes is to persevere through these sorrows, keep the coping mechanisms at bay, let ourselves actually lean into and feel the sadness. And it's there that we find healing. Sometimes that might mean identifying oaks of weeping. What is an oak of weeping in your life? Some memorial, some place of remembrance. Jacob made pillars. He made literal markers, tangible markers along the road to identify the the passing, the loss of his wife, of this nurse. What do you need to do in order to help yourself process loss and grief? But there's a particular kind of grief that comes with the loss of loved ones to death. And we have, as a church community, had dear members of our community that have recently experienced that loss. And so I want to make sure that we also pause and talk about that and the particular sorrow found in death. Three people in this passage pass away. Deborah, the nurse of Jacob's mom, Rebecca verse 8. Rachel, Jacob's wife, verse 16 to 20, who tragically passes away after bearing her last child, Benjamin. Rachel, the one who Jacob loved dearly, again and again we're told that. And then lastly, the passing of Isaac, Jacob's father, in the final verses of this passage. Even these three examples are helpful. Because here is, is the loss of one who might be easily forgotten. We don't even barely know much about Deborah. But sometimes losses are just losses and they need to be grieved. One who is beloved that was lost, Rachel. And one with whom you have a complicated relationship. Isaac, the, the dad who loved the other brother and not Jacob himself. But listen, let's ponder this together. What does the Bible say? Death is terrible. Absolutely terrible. Why? Because human beings were made to live forever. Death is the temporary but violent ripping apart of our physical bodies from our souls. More than terrible, the Bible calls it an enemy of God and his people. And so God saw fit to beat death by dying. And so he sends his son Jesus to die and to rise again, and in doing so to conquer death. See, the great comfort of the gospel is that those who die, who are in Christ, will immediately be taken up into heaven with God, where they will dwell forever in unspeakable joy. And that's why Jesus Himself says, I am the resurrection and the life, everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. And here we even see this language of Jacob, I mean Isaac, excuse me, being gathered up with his people and that's the old ancient way of of talking about what Joyce Baldwin, a commentator, says, an ongoing family beyond the grave. The hope of a reunion beyond, would cheer the loneliness of death the hope of heaven. And when Jesus comes back one day, his promise is that he will raise our physical bodies to life, reuniting those different parts of ourselves torn asunder now, back whole and human again, body and soul. That day is coming again soon. And this gives us great comfort that all who die in Christ will one day be raised again To life. And yet, even these truths don't erase the deep grief of loss, does it? Not entirely. Even Jesus wept at the loss of his friend Lazarus, even knowing that he would raise him up in just a few short minutes. Jesus wept. So you may, you must. I invite you to continue to process that grief and to sort through it through lens and eyes of faith in community and on your own before God as you need to. And I do want to, before moving on, commend to you a, a really helpful resource. It's essentially a book of prayers, and it's called Every Moment Holy. There's a volume one, and this one's called volume two, Death, Grief, and Hope. And it's just prayer after prayer because, you know, when you're grieving sometimes, you are at a loss for words. And for someone else to have written thoughtful, biblical, rich, soul-piercing, soul-healing words for you, that helps a lot. You don't have to make it up on the spot. Someone else has made it up for you. Prayers of all kinds in here. Prayers for moments when dying feels unfair. Many of us have felt that. Prayers of grieving a death due to natural disaster. For the loss of a spouse or grieving a death due to violence. Another one here, a prayer for upon waking from a a disturbing dream of one lost. Prayer after prayer after prayer. And I want to actually pray one of these. Because I know again that there are some here. For which this is not a theoretical exercise. Let me pray this one that's called The Loss, a Liturgy for the Loss of a Loving Parent. And it goes like this O oh God, be near to your children in our grief. I've lived my life till now, O oh Lord, with a sense that there was a strong buffering wall between myself and the risks and uncertainties of life. For there was always one who had existed before me, who loved me from the beginning of my life, who protected me, cared for me, and watched over me. A father, a mother who raised and nurtured me, a grandmother who did not hesitate to sacrifice their own resources for my good or deny their own desires in order to advance my flourishing. They were such a fount of grace to me, echoing so poignantly your own tender, sacrificial love, O Heavenly Father. And now they're gone. This strange change has has not yet fully settled in. Perhaps it never will. There are moments, to I think, to call them or to to seek them out, only to remember again that their earthly journey has reached its end, at least for this age. And I must now navigate the rest of life without them, without their wisdom, encouragement, sympathy, and aid, and without that ever-present sense of stability and safety that their sheltering love so long provided. Meet me in this empty space, O Christ." Be to me O God that which I cannot be to myself. Be to me a shelter, guard, and God be my strong barricade against the gales of life. Be my shepherd, my counselor, and my provider. Most of all, be to me as a parent whose affection for me are displayed in your kindness, compassion, generosity, and delight. Even as I grapple with this loss, O Lord, I thank you for the life of my father, mother, Grandparents who loved me well, who loved me even amidst many hardships and broken moments of their own life. Let me take the best of what they embodied and learn to better practice those qualities in my own relationships. Let me honor them and their many sacrifices for me by availing myself ever more intentionally of your mercies and grace, O God, that I might also become a better lover of your people and your creation. Let even my grief at this loss drive me over time to greater dependence upon you and to a richer understanding of the ways in which you are always and forever my heavenly advocate and father. Meet me in my grief, O God, and let me learn to lean all worry and weight of living upon you. Amen. So we pray with you and we love you and we walk with you. And let me close simply with this word. Let me close simply with this word. I'm talking about grief because I'm talking about the ways in which God gives us grace to grow and change. And sometimes it's that very source of sadness that we have not actually adequately processed or we have, but it's just taking a little bit longer than we thought and we need God to continue his work. And he does heal us and he does change us. He does promise to carry that work unto completion until the day of Christ. He does. He meets us. He met Jacob. And if he met that turkey, Jacob, he will meet you in his love, with his comfort, and with his power to change, even the change that comes by the healing of our hearts. Awakening, turning, remembering, worshiping, grieving. These are some of the things that God uses to affect spiritual change in our lives. Listen, the entirety of Jacob's story has been defined by his running, running from his brother's violent threats. And so this very passage starts with a reminder of that time when you were fleeing from your brother Esau. But did you notice how it ended, this story? Verse 29 when Isaac passed, and his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. Wait, 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 wait. Who was there for Isaac's burial? Esau and Jacob in peace. Change might be slow, change might be bumpy. And it might always be might not always be visible, comfortable, but beloved by God's grace, change and healing is possible. Let's pray. God, I pray right now that you would pour out your spirit. It's clear there's a lot of grief in this room. There's a lot of sadness. Um, and I pray you would minister to people deep in their hearts that you would love people well whether in their struggle towards healing or in their struggle to overcome a certain vice or addictive habit or sin pattern Jesus you have not given up on us You are near to us like you were near always to Jacob. And you love us so. So Every person here, meet us precisely where we need you most. And pour out your Holy Spirit upon us. O God of Abraham, God of Isaac, and God of Jacob. In Christ's name we pray.